On Monday, August 1st, FedEx delivered the first installment of documents from Carl Harp's FBI file. They totaled 539 pages and 14 pages were completely deleted, citing exemptions. I believe this can be challenged as the entire page cannot be deleted as a redaction, um, as far as I understand it, but I could be wrong about that. Um, seeing the page would give you an indication about uh, what kind of document it was. For the most part, these pages were similar to documents I received from the coroner and they did not really show much FBI work itself, but included articles from major newspapers denigrating HARP. This is a common tactic by lawyers in a lawsuit when you're trying to scare off an opposing attorney. You send things in the first batch of documents that make your client look risky or undesirable. I doubt the FBI maintained a file on HARP merely to clip news articles informed by the police. But nevertheless, there were some other details that were helpful. Half of the documents were from a time after Harp's death, and many included duplicate pages, another common attorney tactic. But it was interesting to see that multiple former inmates had written to the FBI or called to say Harp had been murdered and that it was not a suicide. One offered to explain who had been the killer. Some of these letters were handwritten. One was typed. There were also several unreadable copies of Polaroid images. The body was seen from a slightly different angle than the color Polaroids I received from the coroner. They also include a photo from the cell, from the front of the cell, uh, showing the opening, which I had never had before. And there's also a diagram of the cell. Also, some of the interviews with the guards the FBI did very slightly from their statements they gave which I received from the coroner. For instance, some say they found Harp in cut-off jeans and a t-shirt, but, but photos show him in his underwear, covered in blood, and his t-shirt tossed across the room. Another stated it looked as if Harp had bled out on the bunk and then was transferred to a sitting position on the floor. So far, there is no indication the FBI investigated his death much further, but merely backed up the Walla Walla Police and Prison Administration findings, no matter how contrary they were to suicide. I also learned that Hart married his first wife, Sherry, in Canada while he was an escapee from Monroe Penitentiary. He states he was coming back to the U.S. because the police in Canada had been giving him trouble. He doesn't say what kind of trouble, but he had written asking for help with money for a visa for his wife. Instead, his letter went to the FBI. 
he appears to be very poor. He was married to his second wife, Jamie Harloff, as I mentioned in the last podcast, when he was arrested in 1973. And for the most part, many people on the outside that Harp wrote to, except a few, turned his letters over to the FBI. I assume they did so out of fear. Another series of documents covered Harp's stay in King County Jail in 1978, while his first appeal was in progress. He and other prisoners had organized a hunger strike during this time, and this included one of the members from the George Jackson Brigade. Likely because of not eating, Hart began to have epileptic seizures. I do know he had epilepsy from other documents, but the jail medical staff assumed he was faking. They sent him back though he could barely walk without losing his balance. One guard then tried to grab him from the back and instinctually Harp swung at him. The guard attacked him. They tried to get him into a wheelchair to take him back to the jail, but Harp said, I would rather go back by crawling on my hands and knees. Arriving in a wheelchair would have been dangerous for him as it would have shown him to be weak to other prisoners. Guards attacked him and beat him, and again said he was faking. A judge ignored his complaint. A visitor who came to see him wrote to the ACLU and said Harp had been beaten by guards, but this was also ignored by the judge and the administrators. I did find documents that confirmed his broken arms, as described by Harp and others, when he was part of the organization in prison, Men Against Sexism. His arms were both broken by fellow inmates as a disciplinary action. So badly they were in cast for a month. He could not write, or as one of the men put it, wipe his butt. I could find no hospital reference in Walla Walla confirming his hospital stay, which was said to be a month, but he apparently stayed in a county hospital in Seattle for that recovery. That was in these documents. Most of the inmates the FBI interviewed about Harp's death inside Walla Walla chose to say they heard or saw nothing the night of his murder. And this makes sense. Only John Bosch was willing to come forward while he was still an inmate and say he was murdered. There was one interesting statement by the coroner to the FBI who admitted he reluctantly had to hold an inquest, not because he wanted to, but because Harp's supporters would not buy the suicide explanation. I think this was telling. All of the documents give off a feeling of collusion between agencies. I was reminded of something one employee who worked for Vital Statistics for the state of Washington once said to me. It was after I learned of Harp's falsified death certificate 
and had called back a second time to try to get more details. This man had been through a lot, and so had his family. He saw things, but he said to me, I have mouths to feed. I'm not saying anything. And when I told him about Harp's body being held for six months after his death and illegally moved across the state and cremated against his family's wishes, he said, that's why you want to stay outside of institutions, because once inside, they can do whatever they want to you. He did not recognize how he was helping maintain this kind of behavior with his silence. He just took it as a kind of corruption we all must live with and accept. Harp never believed in accepting this corruption. The more he encountered it, the harder he seemed to fight. That is the better response, it seems, for the future. He lived according to his own conscience. He did not live to protect his survival. Because he seemed to know survival after selling yourself and others out was not worth much, and it wasn't much of a legacy to leave behind. When I first arrived in Chicago on my way to Nova Scotia, or so I thought I was going to Nova Scotia long ago, I stayed for several weeks in the YMCA because it was cheap. You had to walk to the shower down the hall, and every night this woman would yell out, you die the way you live, Chicago, over and over. Carl chose not to go gently into that good night. What good is it to fall gently to sleep after slumbering through life, leaving a twisted and corrupt world behind when you could have stopped it? When we're young, we don't believe in corruption of our leaders and government. Not really. It is something you have to experience to believe. And it feels like death when you first encounter it. Then you decide what to do. Every person makes that choice at some time in their life. And whatever they choose, it's the right choice for them. People have said that we create the lives we experience through our own imaginations by what we see as our future. If you see yourself as powerless, you expect a hostile future, and that is what you get. But if you see yourself as worthy and all others as being the same, then you feel no fear and you experience strength and honor in others. This doesn't stop your death, but it changes how much you can do while you are living. Carl felt free. He produced more as his feeling of freedom grew. He was unstoppable except through his death. But even then,
His trail was so indelible that it endures decades later.